Alright, hello everyone, and welcome to another episode of the 411 Ground and Pound MMA podcast. We are your weekly look into the wide, wacky, wonderful world of mixed martial arts. My name is Robert Winfrey, and I'm your host. I want to thank you very much for being here. Per usual, please interact with the podcast. Like, comment, subscribe. If you've done all, if you've already subscribed, if you can interact with the individual episodes, please do so. If you're listening to us on the iTunes or Apple Podcasts, and I forget which one it is, if you could leave a review, much appreciated. If you think it's a three to four star show, give us three. I'm not sitting here saying give me five stars. I don't know that if you think this is worth it, I deeply appreciate it and I will take it. I know I'm better than a one star podcast. It's all I know. So anything above one, I tend to think somewhere three to four is probably uh, probably correct. Uh, give us a review there. Uh, star rating. And again, if you could write a review, would help a great deal. Uh, if you've done all that already, uh, share whatever your social, if you have a social media platform that you prefer, please give us a share there. If you know people that are into the sport that would like the show, tell a person. I don't have a whole lot of friends as people shock, horrify, and annoy me, but, uh, if you know people in real life, then (laughs) feel free to just tell them about us. Uh, again, I appreciate everything that you guys can do, and I appreciate that you listen. Thank you very much. All right, on the agenda this evening, I almost flipped the script here. Uh, I know this is nominally an MMA podcast, but I try to touch on other combat sports when applicable. And let's face it, the UFC event last night was not terribly great. I almost decided to open the show with talking about Fury and Wilder 3, because that was the big event for the weekend in the world of combat sports. But I also kind of figured some of you might revolt, so we're going to do the UFC on ESPN Plus 51 event first. Then talk Fury Wilder, preview of the upcoming event, and yeah, hasn't been a whole lot of news this week, somewhat surprisingly. You'd think there'd be a bit more, but at the moment, we're just, uh, the MMA world is kind of in, not full-on holding pattern, but I have thoughts about this when we get to UFC on ESPN Plus 52 in particular that I want to talk about, so I'll, I'll save some of that for then. But that's the... Agenda for the moment. All right. With that out of the way, let's jump into... Oh, sorry. Last thing. Uh, I am recording this on October 10th. So by the time this comes out, it'll probably be October 11th. So to any of my Canadian listeners, I wish you all a happy Canadian Thanksgiving. I know that's... I know for you guys, that's this uh, coming... It might actually be Monday, now that I think about it. I think... I think Monday is Canadian Thanksgiving, so if not, it's this week at some point, so I wish you all a happy Thanksgiving up there in Canada. I know at least, I know there's a couple of you from up there that listen to this podcast, so I want you to know I am aware of you, and I thank you very, very much for your, your patronage. All right, with the with that out of the way, UFC on ESPN Plus 51. This event lost a fight at the weigh-ins. Uh... We were supposed to get a fight between, what was it, uh, Phil Hawes and Duran Wynn. Well, Wynn pulled out of the, pulled out, like, the day of the weigh-ins, had some kind of a chest injury. Uh, he was then going to be replaced with Chris Curtis, who had been on Dana White's Contender Series. That poor guy. He was on, I think, the first season, and he won his fight via hook-kick knockout and was not given... A contract. If he'd done that, that same fight had taken place, you know, eight episodes later, 
Like, they offer him a contract before he leaves the cage. That's what that show has become. Uh, he briefly retired. He's done that a few times. Like, we're not talking Terry Funk level of retirements, but he's kind of been... Had a big moment, and when the next step didn't come, kind of seriously questioned whether or not he wanted to continue down this path. Anyway, he said he'd fight Phil Haas on short notice. God bless him. Phil Haas said, no, I trained for Duran Wynn. I'm not risking this on another short on a short notice change of opponent. I don't blame Duran Wynn one bit. Or Sorry, I don't blame Phil Haas one bit. I don't really blame Duran Wynn either. You get injured, it sucks. Like, especially depending on what kind of a chest injury you have, that can be miserable. Like, if he damaged his sternum in some respect, or, you know, tore some of the cartilage between his ribs, like, no, you don't want to move, much less fight. So, no blame. I, I seriously don't blame Hawes for looking at this and going, you know what, no, I don't think this is worth it to risk. Apparently, James Krause... Who was here? Who was at the event to corner at least Tim Elliott? He might have cornered somebody else. Uh, said, "Sure, I'll fight because he's crazy." Now that fight obviously didn't come to pass, but so we lost that fight. We lost a few others in the lead-up. Um, what else do we have? We were supposed to get Michael Trezano and Chaz Skelly. Um, a couple of weeks out, as we didn't talk about this last week, but that fight. Because uh, that fight was removed a few weeks ago, but there, w- it were, there was no replacement. Skelly pulled out for reasons not made public. I don't care about that. A fighter can withdraw for whatever reason they want. And there was no replacement sought for Trezano. They just kind of went, okay, fine. Um, we were supposed to get Jamie Pickett and Loriano Staropoli. Not a bad fight. Uh, that was bumped until... Uh, bumped for a few weeks after... Uh, one of Pickett's coaches tested positive for COVID, so the COVID protocol has kicked in. They bumped that back to the fight, an upcoming fight night, the Costa and Vittori one, so handful of weeks. Um, and we were supposed to get Sam Hughes and Lupita Godinez. Hughes pulled out of the bout, uh, I might have been the same day as the weigh-ins, or very close to it. Uh, she was replaced by promotion, uh, a promotional newcomer. And we'll get to the result of that. So, ultimately, we only had nine fights on this card. It was kind of nice to go through quickly. Especially when the last three all went the distance, with varying degrees of success. So, yeah, I... Let me save it for the let me save it for the preview portion, what I have to say about some of the things that are upcoming. Let's talk about the fights here. Main event, Marino Rodriguez defeats Mackenzie during the unanimous decision. 49-46 across the board. I was 48-46 for Rodriguez. I gave Mackenzie Dern a 10-8 second, and the fact that none of the judges gave her a 10-8 second somewhat baffles me. She was in dominant top position for most of that round. She was in control for essentially all of it. She... It just... She clearly won that by a wide enough margin to warrant the 10-8. I was very surprised. I don't object to Rodriguez winning the whole thing uh, at all. She was the correct winner, but the lack of 10-8s there, I think, was a little surprising. Jeez, um, where do I want to start with this? Let me start with Dern. I think what bothered me about Dern here was the lack of second effort. 
Whenever she'd try something, she'd try one thing. That might have been a couple of punches. It might have been a kick. It might, but there was very rarely something followed by something else. It was, I come forward, I throw a one-two, and then I reset. Or I come forward, I swing, I miss, you know, Rodriguez, because Rodriguez was moving around very well. Takes an angle, and then we reset. Instead of, I try something, and then immediately try the next thing. There was very little of that. The two times she got things to the ground, she dominated. It's somewhat to Rodriguez's credit that she didn't get finished. Because she barely survived both of those. Well, the first one. The second one in the... It was one in the fourth round. We're near the... It was fourth or third. Fourth, I want to say, as I'm thinking about it. Uh, where she got a late takedown. Got to full mount. Thought about going for the arm. Wound up kind of like trying to roll for an omoplata as Rodriguez was defending. Round ended right about there. But her superiority on the mat was never in doubt. But Dern is not great about getting you there. And that real lack of chaining things together, especially if you watch her groundwork relative to her anything she does on the feet, it's very apparent. Everything she does on the ground is sequential, is multidirectional. Like, she'll attack one direction and then pass to the other. She'll threaten one arm and then go, like, it all works together. Which is to be expected, she's been grappling forever. And is... Again, an exceptional jujitsu practitioner. She hasn't quite figured out how to go from a strike into a double leg, into switching to a single leg, into trying a trip. Like This is one of the things that, and I hate to use this comparison, but he's the gold standard in some respects. No one's done this better than Khabib. In the sense that once Khabib got to you, he, first of all, he had a bunch of ways to get to you. Sometimes he'd punch into a clinch. Sometimes he'd throw a flying knee to close distance. Sometimes he'd get you to come into him and then double leg you. Like, he had a variety of setups to close distance. But once he did, the way he could transition from one attack to the next, to the next, to the next. And I don't just mean punching you. I mean, he gets close and he threatens an inside reap. And if he can't get that, he switches to a single leg. And then he's threatening to... Then he threatens him to step through trip, and then he slips around behind you, and then he's threatening to suck you back, or he's threatening to push you forward, and he's stripping the like. And it's somewhat unfair to compare people to a gold sta to like the highest possible standard. I get it. I'm not asking that everyone be Habib, but if you're going to primarily be a grappler in modern mixed martial arts, especially in the UFC, you can't have one. You can't throw a few punches and then be a little bit off balance and try to reset if your opponent moves. You can't punch forward into a clinch and then stop. It all has to work together. And it's tiring and it's difficult. And I, this is not me saying you suck if you can't do it. But it is a problem to be addressed. Because you'll get to a certain level being just better than everyone at one thing. You really will. But then you're going to hit a point when someone is good enough to stop your one thing the first time you try it, and then what do you do? And that's kind of what Dern ran into here. She, I don't think she quite had five-round cardio. She faded pretty badly as the fight wore on. 
and she does. She never had a, not never. It's one of the things that her coach, uh, Jason Perillo, was talking about. Whenever Dern would try a second effort on the heels of a first, she would be successful. That's what led to her success in the second round. She threw a cup. She maneuvered uh, Rodriguez closer to the fence, threw a couple of punches, then clinched, then went for it, then like immediately tried to trip. They settled. They clinched. Fought. She tried to throw. She wound up on bottom and then just immediately swept. Like it was. But it was the chaining together of attacks that led to her success. Anytime she tried a single attack, whether that's a punch, a kick, a faked punch into a clinch attempt, it didn't work. Rodriguez was incredibly well-schooled and well-disciplined about keeping her feet moving, clinch-breaking, and minding distance. Anytime uh, Dern tried, most of the times, when Dern tried to close distance, she'd run into either a jab or just a stiff arm that was framing, and Rodriguez would angle off to a side, and then Dern would have to plot and reset. It was uh, it was a really, in that respect, it was a really well-schooled performance from Marina Rodriguez. She's a very, very good fighter. And she was able, the fact that she was able to survive the ground onslaught, which was certainly not nothing, a lot of other people would have been done. And then stop Dern from repeating that success as the fight wore on is a credit to her. She was clearly ready for five rounds. She kept picking at Dern at distance very well. Uh, and she got a very well-earned decision. I don't know that Rodriguez is... Look, Rodriguez's only professional loss was a split decision to Carlos Esparza. I thought she won. Uh, I believe my scoring reflected that live. If not, the second time I watched that fight, and I re I can't remember... I didn't rewatch it in preparation for this fight. But for... Uh, might have been... I don't remember why. I rewatched it, and I remember coming away from it the second time going, yeah, I thought Rodriguez won. So... She's a very talented fighter. I... The top of Strawweight's a bit murky. Couple of reasons. One, we're getting an immediate rematch between uh, Rose Namajunas and Zhang Weili after Rose head-kicked Zhang in the first round. There's no... I've been over this before. There's no reason for this, but they're doing it anyway because the UFC can do whatever they want. You, We don't know what's up with Ioana Jacek yet. And... I'm not saying Ioana should get a title shot when she returns, especially if Rose is still the champion. That's a real hard sell. But she's going to be an immediate uh, player when she comes back. Assuming she does, and I tend to think she will. You've got Carla Esparza on a career best run. The problem is no one cares. And that's not fair to Carla. It, it sucks in point of fact. I, I think she's on the best form of her career, but... She's had a few decisions that were questionable. The Rodriguez one immediately stands out to my mind. And some of her fights, even when she's won clearly, have not been all that interesting. And sometimes that's what you have to do to win. This is not me saying how dare Carla Esparza not fight in a fan-pleasing style. You fight to win, straight up. I'm also not going to lie and say that Stringing together a bunch of wins is all that it takes to succeed in the UFC. It's clearly not. You'd like to think it would be, and I'm 
I'm of the opinion she should have gotten the title shot instead of Zhang. I've said that publicly, and I stand by that. So she's out there, and she's already beaten Rodriguez. I think if Dern had been able to win, she might have been next in line. Might. As it stands, she takes a step back. Rodriguez didn't... She won, and if you know what you're looking at, there was some impressive stuff that she did. But this wasn't a, you know... Uh, highlight real performance, right? This isn't gonna... This is not the type of performance that gets people clamoring for her to leapfrog Carla Esparza, a woman who already beat her, however controversially. So we're just in a weird spot at the top of the division to say nothing of what if craziness happens between Zhang and Nami Yunus. What if Zhang wins? I don't... I still favor Rose, but hypothetically, if Zhang wins, and Zhang is absolutely a good enough fighter to win... Uh... Do they do a trilogy? I mean, you gave Zhang an immediate rematch off of getting head kicked in the first round and one title defense. Rose, funny stat about Rose, actually. This this upcoming fight with Zhang will be her 12th fight in the UFC. Of her 12 UFC fights, including the one with Zhang, assuming it happens, six of them will be title fights. That woman has spent a full 50% of her UFC career contesting for a belt. I mean, that's not... I think the I think the absurd stat of all absurd stats in this respect is Ronda, because every fight Ronda Rousey had in the UFC involved a title. She came in and was, uh, you know, promoted from Strikeforce champion to UFC champion. Then every fight after that was either a defense or a challenge for the title. Uh, but... If 50% of your UFC fights are title fights or more, that's a fairly absurd stat. I don't know who else would be kind of on par with that. Um, maybe George? Who else would be on par with that? Let me think for a second. You'd need someone... Uh, GSP might. Uh, if you, I think if you include interim title fights, GSP would be right or, at or above the 50% mark. Uh, Demetrius Johnson, because he had, what, what did DJ have? Two fights in the UFC, he had two fights at Bantamweight, I think, before he fought for the belt. Uh, let me double check this. I want to be sure. Uh, yeah, he had two, he had two wins at Bantamweight before he fought for the belt. Then the two, then he had the two fights with Ian McCall, so we have... Won bantamweight, won the title, defended, defended. Def then he had his lo his lengthy defense before losing it, and then he left the UFC after that. So yeah, Demetrius Johnson, jeez, had significantly more title fights than not title fights in the UFC. He had he had four non-title fights of his entire in his entire UFC run. Everything else involved a belt. I think even Anderson didn't quite. Anderson might have Anderson might have slipped the other way. Uh, given how long he stuck around after losing the belt, I double check on Anderson. Because Anderson's second UFC fight was for the title. Yeah, he had a lot of. I think he's still. 
Yeah, because he had a couple of non-title fights. I think he still had more title fights than non-title fights. All things considered. Because, let's see. Knocks out Lieben, so then to Franklin we had one. Looter didn't count, sad. Two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, eleven, twelve, thirteen. We'll count the two. So he had thirteen fights involving a title in the UFC. Because he had the two that were the two fights with Weidman that were for the belt, one where he lost it, one where he failed to regain it. So yeah, he he didn't quite tip the other way, but uh, so Anderson would be another guy with more than 50%. But if you're able to pull that off, Ioana's probably around the 50% mark too. Um, if you can do that, that says a lot about you. A little bit about the division too, but a lot about you as a fighter. So Rose could easily get an immediate rematch if she loses, especially if there's some wonkiness. And lest we forget, Jessica Andrade said she was coming back to strawweight. Where does she fit into this picture? I mean, that's a former champion, someone who I think, I think had a bad night when she fought Zhang. Uh, I'm not saying Zhang, I'm not saying, you know, she can't, that Zhang is incapable of beating Andrade. Stylistically, that might be a real problem for Andrade. Uh, but she might be able to tweak a few things and not run face first into a, very strong counterpunch. But, uh, you know, uh, Andrade, I think, I maintain this, man. The way Rose Namajunas fights over five rounds is just very, I don't know that it will ever reliably beat Jessica Andrade. Because, just because of how she chooses to fight. And it works very well against the vast majority of fighters. Andrade stylistically just gives her problems. And that's... Again, I'm not saying that Rose can't beat her, but I think I favor Andrade. Every time they fight five rounds, I will favor Andrade. So you got a lot of questions about the top of straw weight right now, and unfortunately, Rodriguez, both winning and winning in the fashion in which she did, doesn't really help with the clarity. I mean, you could argue that it should still be Carla Esparza, and I'm not disagreeing with you, if Rose beats Zhang again in, let's say, similarly decisive fashion, no controversy, maybe not a first-round finish, but at the end of the day, there's no argument. Do you? I mean, lest we forget, Carlos Barza and Rose Namajunas fought for the inaugural strawweight title in the UFC, and Esparza got a first, second, second-round submission. I think it was second. Uh, Esparza choked her out. So we might get that rematch. Then again, if, you know, if Andrade comes back down and says, hey, uh, I'm one and one with Rosanama Yunus, and they've produced quality moments and quality fights, how about we do that for a third time with the belt on the line again? They're probably going to do it. It's, it's and again, Yoan is still in this position. So, who knows? Uh, it... To gain a bit of clarity, we needed Dern to not only win but to finish Rodriguez. If, if that second in that second round uh, bit of ground domination, Dern grabs an armbar and we're done. I think Dern gets the first crack at the winner of Zhang and Rose, provided there's no no controversy around that finish. Um, sadly, 
Not what happened. So who knows what'll be next for Rodriguez? We might get Hodri if Joanna comes back soon. We might get Rodriguez and Joanna to be a heck of a fight. Uh, I don't know exactly. Dern, she needs some re she needs some retooling. She just does. Uh, it's she's reached a level, and to be fair to her, she's young enough, not just physically, but you know, relatively young in the sport. These are things. These are adjustments that can be made. There's a decent chance Mackenzie Dern will have another three to five years of fighting. A fair chunk of that probably in the UFC. So there's still plenty of time uh, for some of these improvements to be made with her game. But she really does need to get on those uh, sooner rather than later. So that was your main event. We're going to go fairly quickly through the rest of these. Randy Brown defeated Jared Gooden via unanimous decision, 30-27 across the boards. I don't have a whole lot to say here. Um, Gooden landed some decent calf kicks, but he was really struggling with the length of Brown through most of this fight. Brown just kind of jabbed him, just kept him on the outside, landed some good combinations here and there. Um, it was all right. Flyweight, Matthias Nicolau. Is it from Matthews? I forget how that's supposed to be pronounced. Uh, I'm going with Matthias. I'm going to go with Mateus at the moment. Just apologize if I'm wrong. Mateus Nikolaou defeated Tim Elliott for unanimous decision. 29-28 across the boards. Elliott had the first. Then the second, Nikolaou kind of found his striking a little bit more consistently. Uh, got, I think he got a takedown in the second, too, and was able to work with that. Third round, he got a takedown and was able to ice the majority of that round in top position because Elliott just kind of held on and hoped for a stand-up. This is a fun little scrap. Uh, Nikolaou's pretty darn good. He's only got... I think he's only got one loss in the UFC. Uh, yeah, he, he lost to Dustin Ortiz. This was the... This was a, a fairly significant step up for him in terms of competition. But... Because uh, he came into the UFC at bantamweight. And had some good wins at bantamweight, actually. Well, he, so he came in at bantamweight, moved back down to flyweight. Beat John Moraga and Luis Smolka. Then lost to Dustin Ortiz. Moved back up to bantamweight. Submitted Al, uh, Alan Gabriel and and beat Felipe Efrain. Moved back to flyweight, beat Manel Kopp, and now Tim Elliott. This is the biggest win of his career, I think. And it should put him... He was number 11 coming into this. Elliott was ranked above that. I forget where exactly. He, Elliott wasn't top 5, but he was top 10. Uh... So, Nikolaou might be due someone closer, he should be due someone, you know, ranked close to the top five, probably, for his next fight, give or take. Uh, a lot of people are kind of forgetting about Nikolaou, and some of that's his activity, some of that, some of his fights have been close, but that guy's, he's a problem for that division. A quiet problem, but a problem. Uh, women's flyweight this next, Maria I Agapova defeated Sabina Mazo via rear naked choke, 53 seconds of the third round. Uh, this was all Agapova. Uh, Mazo never got a good feel for the range. Agapova kept sniping her at distance, picking with kind of one-twos, good left body kicks. Then the finish came She threw in the third round. She threw a left to the body and a chopping right hook that dropped Mazo. She jumped on the back immediately, choked her out. Like, she jumped and had the choke and the hooks, like, in one motion, and that was it. Uh, Agapova really needed the rehab win here. She came in and had a really good UFC debut uh, when she beat... Check who she beat. 
She kind of ran over Hannah Cyphers. Then, when she fought Shauna Dobson, she came out like a hurricane in the first round. And, unfortunately, completely emptied the gas tanks. Such that when the second round came around, Dobson took her down, got on top, and beat the crap out of her, forcing the stoppage. Here we got, I think, a good a good look at what Agapova's really capable of. She's long for the division. She's got good shot selection. Not the best variety. She tends to find a combo that works and then repeat it. And a better striker than Mazo will punish her for that. But uh, her gas tank looked more in... Uh, not only looked better, but she looked better about managing it. If she can maintain this form, I... I'm not saying champion, but this form that she showed here will trouble the majority of that division. And kicking off the main card, Chris Gutierrez defeated Felipe Colares via split decision. 230-27 for Gutierrez, 129-28 for Colares. I'm not going to yell about this one be, being split too much. The um, I'm a little bit. I don't know why you would give Colares the third round. Um, the first round I thought was close, and I could see an argument for Colares. I, I don't. I'm not as comfortable giving Kolaris the third. Ultimately, the right guy wins, but some questionable judging there. Uh, Gutierrez is a weird fighter in some respects. He's got skills. But he doesn't really come alive until the end of a fight, at which point he kind of tries to incite a bit of a slugfest, and he does well when people oblige him there. Uh, his low kicks are powerful and a, a serious weapon, he won the fight deservedly so. Gutierrez is a bit of an underappreciated bantamweight. I mean, his UFC record, he's got one loss. His only loss in the UFC is to Hani Barcelos, which was his UFC debut. Since then, he's beaten Ryan McDonald, Geraldo de Freitas, Vince Morales, fought to a draw with Cody Durden up at... Uh, uh, yeah, draw with Cody Durden. Beat Andre Ewell and here beat Felipe Colares. That man's due a step up in competition. Uh, I'm not sure how well he'll succeed at the top end of bantamweight, because bantamweight is a ludicrously stacked division. But I think he's due a shot. Uh, that was your that was the main card. As for the prelims, Alexander Romanov defeated Jared Vandera via TKO. Punches from Mount, uh, 443 of the second. Romanov's a weird guy in some respects. He's got a lot of flashy throws that he likes to use. Unfortunately, the pr the big problem with throws and slams like that is the perpetual motion and a lot of the energy generated allows the guy on bottom to keep moving and to help regain their feet. That's what happened in the first round. He threw Vandera several times, but every time he did, Vandera would use the energy, use the momentum to help regain his feet. And... Keep fighting in the clinch, look to tire Romanov out. In the second, Romanov gets him against the fence and just hits a nice little outside reap to land in half guard. When Romanov establishes control, he and this is not a fat joke. I've said this before. Being heavy on top is not about your weight. If you've never rolled with a smaller guy who really knows what they're doing and they feel like a black hole... Like, just infinite density on top of you. Like, it's not about being a large person. It's about knowing how to control your opponent. 
Uh, and Romanov is heavy on top. He's not easy to get off you once he establishes control. If he'd ease up on the flashy throws, uh, he'd be better off. Like, just get a... Your takedown should lead to a control position, if at all possible, more than your opponent hitting the mat. Because once he gets there, he's good about control, he's good about passing, he's good about landing ground and pound. Like, he's good. Uh, he, he just makes some odd decisions, especially early, that are not only energy inefficient, but somewhat more tactically inadvisable given what he's trying to accomplish. Uh, that said, Romanov is due a step up. He should be fighting a ranked opponent next. Heavyweight's thin enough. Someone between 12 and 15. I don't know who that is right now, but he sh if not a ranked opponent, someone with a very recognizable name. Uh, featherweight, Damon Jackson defeated Charles Rosa via unanimous decision to 29-28, 29-27, and 30-27. I believe I was 30-27. The 10-8 the for Jackson in the second seat, which is the only round I think it would be relevant, seems a bit odd. Uh, Jackson got hit with a spinning elbow in the start of the third that uh, pretty badly cut him. It was on his right, on the right side of his face by the temple, kind of by the eyebrow on the temple spot in the vertical. Vertical cuts always feel worse to me because... I don't know. It seems like the skin, especially when you get to around the eyes, it kind of wants to part more horizontally. If you split someone vertically, like you did something serious. And he bled like a stuck pig. I mean, he was just gushing. Well, gushing is the wrong word. Gushing implies a very specific, like, uh, spout. But he definitely bled a lot. And they, as soon as that... he. He got hit with it, got a takedown, and they let the, the ref let the takedown play out, let some of the scrambling on the ground play out. But as soon as they got kind of up more to the clinch, the ref wanted the doctor to check it. Credit to the doctor, the doctor cleaned it, looked at it, and said, yeah, it just bleeds a lot. The stuff around the temples in particular, like, if that gets, if you get a cut there, it'll bleed a lot. Uh, but he bled a lot. But he persevered, got the win. Solid win for Jackson. Uh, strawweight, Lupita Godinez defeated Silviana gomez Juarez via armbar 4-14 of the first round. Uh, Juarez took this fight on short notice. I give her credit for that, but she was no match for Godinez. Godinez beat her on the feet, got her down. Once they hit the ground, it was no contest. Godinez got her back, and then when she tried to escape the back mount, she grabbed an armbar. Armbars from the back in MMA, still fairly criminally underused. Uh, Godinez found it as she was trying to roll through, extended it, got the tap. Good on her. And at lightweight, Steve Garcia defeated Charlie Ontiveros via TKO, elbows and punches, just ground and pound stuff, 151 of the second. Uh, Ontiveros got cut. Not nearly as bad. I think his was more... Um, wasn't in as bad a spot and wasn't nearly as bad a cut. They were kind of even on the feet. Ontiveros would hit Garcia, and he, he stunned him a couple of times in the first round. Uh, and Garcia, just once they hit the ground, he was able to get a decent control position and just bombed on him, uh, leading to the stoppage in the second. Decent win for Garcia. Uh, your post-fight bonuses, fight of the night was Marina Rodriguez and Mackenzie Dern. All right. 
Uh, I'm not going to begrudge those ladies getting extra money. I mean, every fighter is underpaid. Not sure I would have. That would have been my fight of the night, but eh. And performances went to Lupita Godinez and Marina Agapova. No issues with any of that. Um, yeah, no issues with any of that. So that was it. Uh, thanks to anyone who read my live coverage or the report after the fact, all of which, uh, both of those, I don't really edit the report down. It's in the MMA zone of 411mania.com, so if you're interested, you can go read my round-by-round play-by-play and get video clips of the finishes when I could find them. So, thank you very much. I appreciate all of that. All right, let's move on to the, again, the biggest fight of the week. Uh, Tyson Fury and Deontay Wilder 3. We got here because of a contractual mandate, but... This fight, man. I did live kind of wa- I did a live watch along with Mark Radlich for this fight. So if you're interested in that, you can find it over on the W2M Net uh, feed, be that YouTube or their Twitch channel. I don't know how VODs work for n- some people on Twitch, but uh, for where the W2M Net thing is, it's W it's Twitch.tv/W2Mnet. That's two, the number two. Or the YouTube channel, if you wanted to see some of the videos, uh, the video portion of that. And um, this was this is gonna sound really weird. I'm not I'm not alone in this take, but hear me out. This was the best. This was the most entertaining fight of the three that these two have put on. And there's been a bit of a weird journey with this. The first time they fought. Fury was a lot of stick and move, a lot of very, very slick boxing. They fought to a draw. Wilder got one knockdown that was a... I mean, I'm not saying it wasn't a knockdown, but... A little bit iffy, and then the knockdown in the 12th round is now iconic. Because Fury got up. (laughs) Uh, I disagreed with the scoring of that fight uh, by two of the... I, I didn't agree with the draw scoring... I certainly didn't agree with the judge who gave it to Wilder. Because of the draw, we get a couple of fights in between, and then we get a rematch. The rematch, Tyson Fury bulks up a little bit and adopts a different strategy. He does a lot more forward pressure, because Deontay Wilder is not very good off the back foot. And he does a lot more fighting like the big man. You know, punching him into the clinch, pulling on him, wearing on his arms and his shoulders... Uh, back, just backing him up, battering him, avoiding his punches, smothering him, clinching him, making it ugly, and Wilder falls apart, and his corner throws in the towel in the seventh. Here, we get a slightly... Fury did a lot of the same stuff, but not quite in the same way for a few different reasons. Wild, both men were at their heaviest for this fight. They've both gotten bigger each time. For this fight, Wilder weighed, um, geez, what, 240? Something like that, and Fury was like 277. Uh, there's about a 40-pound weight gap between them. And, <laughs> uh, which is kind of, uh, it's hilarious to watch Deontay Wilder be the smaller man, because Wilder is a large man. He's 6'7", you know, two, two, somewhere between, usually his career has been around the 220 mark, Occasionally bulked up a little bit more. He Again, career heavy here at around 240. And, 
with this enormous reach. Like, Wilder is a very large man. And then you put him in there next to Tyson Fury, and he looks smaller. Because Fury is huge. Those of you who don't know, Tyson Fury is 6'9". And for this fight, again, weighed around 270. Right about, uh, almost 280. It was like 277, I think. I forget exactly. Uh, and I don't think Wilder's good at being the smaller man when he fights, because you have to be, there, there's certain technical things you have to do to be better about it. But this fight wound up being the most engaging of them for a couple of reasons. One, the drama increased earlier because there was a dramatic shift. Now, the first round was a bit of feeling out from both men. Wilder did a lot of body jabbing. And at the watching this live, Mark complains about it. And I brought up a little bit that Wilder does a lot of jabbing not to hurt you, but to measure for his right hand. And some of the stuff he was doing with his feet were kind of counterbalancing that. Now, I've having thought about it, I think the other th- the other reason he was jabbing to the body, there's a few other reasons you do it. One, if you're if you got a strong jab, you know, it's not fun to get punched in the gut. Two, it'll stop your if you can time it right, you can stop the opponent coming forward. You're basically stiff arming them. So, dissuade a little bit of forward motion and the other re- uh, again, Fury does it to met Fury. Wilder does it to measure more often than anything. And the other reason is to set up your right hand. The the jab to the body, the thing you do with your shoulders, is pretty much identical to the setup for an overhand right. If you, you, you start that little dip with your shoulders and then you stab the left jab out to, or right, just, uh, because I'm right-handed, just for the, let's just assume orthodox for the moment. You dip your shoulders and you stab the jab to the body. You do this a few times, your opponent starts to anticipate it. That same first move with your shoulders loads your right, loads your power hand to come over the top. So you then start that same motion, maybe the lead hand dips just a bit, anticipating the jab, and then the power hand comes over the top. For you MMA fans out there, if you want to see this done, watch Prime Junior Dos Santos. This was one of JDS's favorite things to do. He jabbed the body, he jabbed the body, he jabbed the body, he threw the overhand. Because you thought the body jab was coming, and here comes the hammer. Now, Wilder's footwork and some of the stuff he was doing somewhat negated bits of that, but I think, one, it was designed to be scoring, a little bit measuring, and a little bit to kind of dissuade Fury from really closing in and getting the clinch. And I think to that end, it was a successful move. Now, I gave Fury the first round. I thought he landed the more quality strikes when it was all said and done. All three judges disagreed. Fair enough, I'm not going to die on that hill. Second round, Fury gets rolling a little bit more. Wilder's still jabbing to the body, but Fury has kind of an answer. He's starting to parry it. He's starting to follow it back a little bit on a different angle. He's starting to get close. He's starting to use his own jab, which was a very effective punch for him all fight. Uh, He would... He was cracking Wilder with a pretty decent long left hook. Fury just kind of got rolling. Third round, Fury is pretty solidly in control and drops Wilder. And you're starting to get the feeling this is, you know, this is all going one way. The fourth round, things change in a hurry. Fury gets a little lazy on an entry. He lets Wilder put his left hand out and measure him. And when he does, 
Wilder suddenly knows where you are, and the right hand follows. And he cracks Fury square on the jaw with a straight right down the pipe. And Fury gets hit. He wobbles a bit. He tries to kind of get back in, and then you see the full effect, and he falls. Rule to knockdown, fair knockdown. This punch hurt Tyson Fury more than the left hook in the 12th round of their first fight. And I can say that because look at the difference in what happens afterwards. Watch the 12th round again when he gets knocked down. What does he do? He gets up, does what the ref tells him to do, and then as soon as they restart, he's going forward and he's fighting again. Immediately. I'm not saying Deontay Wilder doesn't hit hard. I'm saying that left hook in the 12th round, while it scored a clear knockdown, it did not long-term affect Fury because he got right back to the business of fighting. Contrast that with the with the fourth round here. Watch what happens. Fury gets up, tells the ref I'm good. Ref like ref is okay with what he sees. Guard comes up like he does everything for the fight to continue. But watch what he does. He stops moving. Wilder comes in and starts swinging. Fury does a little bit of head movement, but he's not like he's still hurt. So he tries. So he ties up, which is what you're supposed to do when you're hurt. But you can see this one hurt him worse because he stops doing what he was doing. This is the big tell, especially for body work in particular, guys. If you want, sometimes guys get hit to the body or girls, fighters get hit to the body and they immediately crumple. That happens. More, if you want to better tell consistently, watch what a fighter does after they've been hit to the body. If they get hit to the body and they keep doing what they were doing, it didn't hurt them that much. Doesn't mean you shouldn't keep throwing it, but a fighter with a good poker face, even a fighter with a good poker face, you hit them solidly to the body and they stop doing what they were doing. This is one of the big tells about Daniel Cormier being soft to the body. Watch anyone that he fought, who went to the body on him, he would stop doing what he was doing. Even Frank Mir, like Frank Mir got some knees to the body on him in his UFC debut. And Cormier didn't like it. Watch what he, sto- watch what he stopped doing and watch what he started doing. That's a big, big tell about, what, about how someone reacts to body work. The same is true for headshots. Especially in boxing where you can get knocked down and get up and, you know, take take your part of the count, and then get back to work. If they don't get back to work, they, they're more rattled than you thought. Fury stopped doing what he had been doing all round previously. He got knocked down again, which, yeah, the second one, that second knockdown I was a little bit less, a little bit less convinced of. It looks more like a rabbit punch to the back of the head in the clinch, and he kind of drops on that. It's, yeah. It was ruled a knockdown by the ref, I'm not sure I agree with it, but okay. Fifth round is where you realize, I think, that that was the only shot Wilder had. By the time the fifth round starts, Fury's recovered. And Wilder at this point is pretty well gassed. I want to give Deontay Wilder a ton of credit. He fought a decent fifth round. I think a couple of the judges gave it to him. I didn't, for whatever my scorecard's worth. But the fifth round is where Fury gets rolling again, and now he's rolling downhill. Wilder bulking up, 
I think, taxed his cardio. Now, he's also having to fight a style of fight that's going to punish him for it. Because Wilder bulked up mostly in the shoulders and the chest and the back. And his legs, even by the time we get to the fourth and by the fourth and fifth rounds, even Wilder's legs aren't quite all the way there. Now, some of that's he's always had awkward to bad footwork. But fight a guy like Tyson Fury maximizes those mistakes and then fights in a way that makes it worse for you. You start having to carry his weight at times and it's bearing down on your shoulders and your arms when you're trying to hold him up and your legs and he's leaning you into the ropes, and you're just trying to deal with all of this physicality. And in the fifth round, Wilder's legs aren't really there anymore. And, again, I give him credit for fighting. By the time we hit round six, I think that's it. Wilder is still throwing punches in the sixth round, but his technique is getting worse and worse. His setups become less and less... His setups go away he just starts swinging and Fury just keeps rolling. Fury keeps backing him up. He keeps getting him into the, not just to the ropes, but then leaning into the ropes. He's battering him to the body. He's landing uppercuts in the clinch. He's pot shotting him at distance. Uh, it, it just keeps getting worse and worse and worse. And then round seven, it's more of the same. Eight, it's more of the same and it's getting worse. And Wilder... I'm going to give the man credit for this. He took at least two rounds of physical abuse he didn't need to. And this is that's a bit of an indictment on the ref. It's an indictment on his corner. But it is to his credit as a fighter that his his will and his spirit was still there. And I'm not the biggest Deontay Wilder fan, but that... I think that deserves credit, especially on reflection. Like, someone should have stopped that fight before it happened, before he got knocked out. He gets knocked out in the in the eleventh. But the number of fighters who would have either been stopped due to the bevy of strikes they were absorbing earlier, or just their own will breaking, and just giving up on the stool. So, so, so many fighters, so many good fighters, so many great fighters would have been done. And his spirit in that respect deserves to be acknowledged. So I want to give him that credit. It just, But the fight just keeps getting worse. He gets dropped again in the 10th. Uh, that, that was a pretty bad one. He gets clubbed with a right and he falls forward. It, one of the ways you want to know who's the first guy to really start losing a boxing fight. Look for who goes for the first double leg, <laughs> right? That's, that's one of the big tells. And he got clocked and he went down kind of grabbing at Fury's legs. Like his conditioning was gone. His hand position, like his, his legs were dead. His arms were dead. All of his punches were not just poorly, like poorly executed arm punches. They were slow and he, he just had nothing. And he kept coming and he got up after that. When he got dropped in the 10th. Another thing about his, you can call this stupid, like, like guts to the point of stupidity. He could have stayed down in the 10th and nobody would have 
nobody would have questioned the ref if the ref waved it off. And if he just couldn't get up, or maybe could have but chose not to to save himself physical abuse, not a human being walking this earth would have criticized Deontay Wilder in that moment. But he got up, said he could continue, and got pummeled again, and pummeled again, and survived the round, and then in the 11th, we're just done. He's got Fury, backs him into the ropes almost immediately, is just brutalizing him to the body, hits him with an uppercut, misses a left hook, lands a right hook, and Fury and Wilder face plants. Like, done. Thankfully. If you listen to the, what I was saying live, by the time we got to the 10th, I was getting a little uncomfortable. Not hugely, but to the point, it was very clear at that point that this is no longer helpful or necessary, right? Wilder, at that point, did not even have a puncher's chance against Tyson Fury, given everything that had transpired. Look, if that exhausted version of Wilder throws a right hand at me, is he going to sleep me? Yeah. Almost certainly. But he's not fighting me. He's fighting the best heavyweight boxer of the, of this era in Tyson Fury. There's no point to this anymore. And I was a little bit legitimately concerned for Wilder as that 10th round ended. Uh... And thankfully, that knockdown in the 11th scored the knockout. Uh, this was... How do I say this? This wasn't the most technical heavyweight fight of the year. That probably goes to Alexander Usyk when he beat Anthony Joshua. That was... If you like boxing, like the technique and the science, Usyk versus Joshua is your fight. And I love that fight, too. This fight was, it's not that there's no technique. That, that That's a, especially because of the two participants involved. That's going to get bandied about a lot, that these guys have no technique. Wilder's technique isn't great, and it gets worse as the fight goes on. Fury, on the other hand, is a very good boxer. When he chooses to fight the way that he chose to, fu- to fight, there's a reason for it. It's because it messes with his opponent. Like, look at some of his other fights. Watch the way he fights Vladimir Klitschko. That's not a terribly interesting fight for the most part, but look at how he boxes. I mean, if you want to know what he's purely capable of as a boxer in the scientific sense, watch his first fight with Deontay Wilder. It's marvelous. It really is. Here, he chooses to fight a specific way, and there's still technique involved. It's just designed to elicit a specific result. If your if your picture-perfect jab is not landing and your ugly jab is, you throw the ugly jab because the point is to make contact most of the time. Like, you can use a jab as a setup, but you get what, I mean, what I'm saying here. The goal is to make contact and to win the fight. I'm not saying Fury couldn't win by purely outboxing Wilder, But look at what he did. And yeah, there was a moment of scare in the fourth. But I think I gave Fury every other round. Again, the first I won't. The first is not a hill I'll die on. 
The fifth, I tend to feel more strongly about going to Fury than Wilder. But every other round, again, there were a couple of judges who went, I think there was one judge who went for Fury, or for, one for Wilder in the second. And I don't get that. I, I don't. One judge, um, I think this was Steve Weisfeld, only gave Tyson Fury a 10-9-10 after the knockdown. Now, it's not impossible to only lose a round 10-9 after getting knocked down. But it takes a serious, heroic effort to overcome that point differential. And that guy, thinking that Wilder pulled off that kind of heroics after being knocked down to regain that lost point? Uh Uh-uh. Buddy, turn in your license. Like, seriously, no one should license that man to judge boxing again. Like, that's just stupid. Either either he's trying to make an indefensible case for Wilder's abilities and what Wilder accomplished in that three-minute time frame, or he missed it. Either case is gross incompetence. Fire that man. Uh, Wilder was, excuse me, Fury was ahead on all four scorecards going into the 11th. It was 95, 91, 94, 92, and 94, 92, I seem to recall. Or 95, 90, 95, 91, 94, 92, 95, 92. Uh, going off the top of my head. I don't, again, I don't agree with Wilder getting the first. I don't agree with Wilder getting the fifth. The first, I'm willing... The first, I will concede, maybe. Absolutely. Uh, you, Wilder gets a 10-7 for two knockdowns in the fourth. Uh, but apart from the round that he scored those knockdowns, those are the only rounds I personally gave to him. I can see the first as an argument. The fifth, I dis- the fifth, I don't see as much the argument. Now... I'd have to rewatch the fight in that round in particular, but especially because when I watch these for alternate commentary, I have to mute the broadcast so I can't hear the impact being made, which does play a factor. So I'm the first is not a hill at all. I'm willing to die on. I'm willing to concede close enough, whatever fifth. I need to rewatch, but my inclination and my fairly strong inclination is that was a fury round. And then every round after that, like, there, I don't think there's an argument for Wilder taking any round after five. I don't know if any of the judges gave him one after five. There might have been one, but... I, I looked at the scores the other night. I can't remember. I could look it up. You know what? Let me. Because if I'm going to potentially yell about this, I would like to be entirely correct. Uh, okay, here we go. Um... So, yeah, one, oh, God, yeah, one judge, um, Tim Cheatham gave Fury, the, gave Wilder the ninth. Yeah, fire that guy, too. God. <laughs> I don't know how you defend that. I really don't. And then, yeah, you have um, Weisfeld, Steve Weisfeld. Only giving Fury a 10-9 after scoring a knockdown? Oh, yeah. 
Yeah, this. Ugh. Questionable scoring. Questionable scoring of some individual rounds. But, so if you look at the other two judges, one of, I think two of them gave Wilder the fifth, which I don't, again, I don't agree with, but I'm not going to die on that hill. But the other two judges gave Fury every round six through ten. Like six, seven, eight, nine, and ten. So things once things got rolling for Fury, they got rolling in a hurry. Uh, this was a this was a high drama, fairly high action uh, fight. The crowd ate this up. The fans, like the fans online, ate this up, and I don't blame anybody. <laughs> like this was an in for every bit as technically fascinating as Usyk and Joshua was, and picking up on the little nuances. This was. This was a, in some respects, kind of a brawl. It, now, not a full brawl that would do a great disservice to what Tyson Fury was doing strategically. But this was your action, drama. And look, the drama comes out of the fourth round and Fury having that one bit of slipping. When I say slipping, I don't mean physically on the canvas. I mean, the the moment, the mental and the strategic slip that led to him getting cracked with that right hand. But he's, but, and after that, it got just worse and worse for Wilder, but uh, this was the fight that a lot, that people bought into, and I'm not here to say that that's an invalid way to view fights, because the audience reaction and is a big part of it. it. It can't be denied. You can... How much weight you give it is a matter of personal preference. I tend to care a little bit less about fan reactions, but I'm not going to pretend that it doesn't factor. Uh, so a lot of this is probably going to feature rather highly on some people's fight of the year list. This was, in my opinion, so this is all you're getting is from me, my opinion after watching it once. This was probably the most engaging heavyweight title fight in heavyweight boxing in quite some time. Uh, maybe dating all the way back to Joshua beating Klitschko. I mean, you could... Here's the thing about this. When Anthony Joshua lost his fight with the first fight with Andy Ruiz... Uh, people watching it live got a little bit into it because suddenly Ruiz is doing the impossible. I mean, put impossible in air quotes because he did it. But it wasn't a fight people got up for, you know? People watched that out of curiosity to see Joshua. This fight had the pre-fight hype. This fight had the in-fight action and the in-fight drama, the momentum swings. This fight had everything the vast majority of fans of combat sports want to see. And I'd be lying if I said I did not enjoy the heck out of this fight. I absolutely did. If you want to see the better boxing technique, Usyk and Joshua is your fight. I love that fight. And that is a very compelling fight for as... 
it's not even low action because Usyk and Joshua is not low action at all. But it's given how boxing tends to play out, it's rare to find boxing bouts, even title fights, that have zero knockdowns. Uh, the drama that went into Usyk and Joshua was a little bit about Usyk starting well, Joshua adjusting and spending a few rounds having figured Usyk out, and what's Usyk going to do now? And then Usyk adjusting to Joshua. Like, There's an ebb and flow to it, but it's not as dramatic. It's a lot more subtle. And it's very engaging, and it's very interesting, and I'm... I'm, if I can't, if I haven't sold you already on watching Usyk Joshua as a great demonstration of the art and science of boxing, especially on the part of Usyk, then it's just not going to be your thing. This was much more loud, if that makes sense. If we have subtle in Usyk and Joshua, here we have bombastic. You know, here we have the the bigger, obvious momentum swings, the scares. The thrill, the scares, the recoveries, the thrills, the slow dawning realization that Wilder is just getting outmatched and outmatched and wore down and worn down. And he's still swinging. And the last two rounds in particular, you just kind of watch to see what it's going to take to finally put Deontay Wilder down because most mortal men would have fallen three two three rounds ago and here is this guy outmatched technically outgunned in every way except raw punching power and his legs are dead and his arms are dead but his mind is still mostly there and he still has the physical capability and the will to stand and until you beat that out of him he's going to stand and swing back and on the other side, you have Fury, the best heavyweight boxer of his generation. Hurt worse than any other time he's fought Deontay Wilder. Got dropped what, twice in their first fight, once earlier and then that big left hook in the, in the 12th. Figures him out in the second fight. Pretty, clear, pretty convincingly figures him out and just runs over him. Now forced into a trilogy fight via essentially contractual mandate and having lost out the on maybe the biggest payday of his career let's not mince words here if you're interested in the best fighting the best in boxing it was Usyk and Fury is the two best heavyweight boxers in the world more than Fury and Joshua there's no way around that but let's also not pretend that Fury and Joshua held in London wouldn't have been the vastly bigger box office attraction. And between Wilder and Wilder invoking his his mandatory rematch and then Joshua losing to Usyk, it cost Fury that payday. Now he made a lot of money for this fight. In fact, um Saw this on Twitter, and I think... I haven't seen this show in question. I haven't seen Squid Game yet. But I think someone on Twitter mentioned that the contestants on Squid Game were competing for what Wilder and Fury each made for this fight. So it's not like this fight was some giant uh, uh, calamitous blow to his bank account. He's going to make a lot of money off of this fight, especially if the uh, 
pay-per-view buys come in high and they were apparently they were trending quite well quite well i mean and anybody who bought this fight got their money's worth out of this main event the rest of the pay-per-view card not so much but uh, if you want mark and my quick thoughts on that check out the live coverage we did because we had to vamp a little at the start given the length of the entrances and we talked about the previous fights uh, so you've got this, and he's now lost, because he already knows that Joshua lost to Usyk, so he's lost what would have been a blockbuster event for the UK. You put him, you put Fury and Joshua in a stadium in London, and not only, and you sell that thing out, and you make it a big show, and that's, that is an enormous fight, especially held in the UK. Enormous. And he's lost that because of this guy that he's beaten. He fought to a draw once, but he feels he won. I feel he won. Most people thought he won that fight. Then who he comprehensively beat the next time. And now this this guy won't go away. And he's diminished your accomplishments. He's cost you a shot to become the first undisputed heavyweight champion of the four belt era. And now he's making you fight him again. And he's bulked up and... He's still a dangerous opponent. Like, there's no... I don't know that Deontay Wilder is the hardest puncher in the history of the heavyweight division. I don't know how you'd have to measure him versus other people. I know he is one of them. I know that when you talk about power punchers, just power punchers, Deontay Wilder's right hand should be considered one of the one of the hardest punches in heavyweight boxing history. Right up there with, you know, Tommy Morrison's left hook or any Mike Tyson's, God, Tyson's. Like, that's the kind of power this man has. And that deserves to be acknowledged. And now you're trying to dance around and deal with this dangerous opponent again. Then you get hurt. You get cracked. You get dropped at one point in their first fight. A, A good punch, but, you know, as much... As much kind of a footwork thing as anything else. Then you get blasted with that left hook in the 12th. And you got up and you got right back to it. So maybe you know the man can crack. You don't want to be hit by him. But maybe you start to feel a little bit more comfortable. A momentary lapse on entering on a straight line. And you feel you know, the the hammer of Thor. You know, Mjolnir crushes you into, the, crushes into your face. And... Suddenly, you're the most hurt you've been ever fighting this guy. Maybe the most hurt you've ever been in your career. On the biggest stage you've been on. And you persevere. And everything that you've overcome, the mental hurdles, the physical hurdles, every bit of that has to come to bear as you recover and now he's rolling downhill and he's constantly in your face and you get to watch the best heavyweight boxer of that era on the other side as he fights one of the most whatever you want to say about wilder's shortcomings i don't feel too out of line calling him at one of the most dangerous fighters to fight it's not that you can't beat him it's that unless you really sap his energy He's always going to be able to throw a good punch that, if it lands on you, will turn your lights out. 
and Fury has now sapped his energy with smart tactics and a good and a good strategy and good boxing and he's moving well and there's this sluggish still dangerous and uh, opponent against him who just won't go away and Fury finally has to put him down and does so with a beautiful right hook that just definitively ends things uh this was this was drama this was big and again, bombastic and over the top in some respects compared to the subtle brilliance of Usyk and Joshua. But you're getting two sides of the same coin when it because this wasn't this very much was not a tough man style brawl. Fury used boxing to win this fight. He mixed it with some other elements that were designed specifically to attack Wilder's deficiencies. But he... Make no mistake about it, there was boxing here, not just punching. And you got to be reminded that Tyson Fury is the man when this was all said and done. I think he... Now, there's still a few hurdles to overcome. Joshua has has invoked his immediate rematch clause with Usyk. Uh, Fury is still the WBC champion. This is actually the first major title Fury defended. Because he won all the belts and then had his mental health crisis and wound up giving them all up. And then he came back and then he beat Wilder for the WBC belt. And this was his first... Actually, I think this might be his... Yeah, this was his first ever major title defense. Uh, The WBC ordered him or ordered the winner of this fight to fight either Alexander Usyk or Dillian White. Now, depending on the timing for Usyk and Joshua and what Fury wants to do, we might get Fury and Dillian White in the interim. Um, I think one of the other potential mandatories that came out of this card was um, Hellenius, who, uh, I forget his first name, Robert Hellenius, I forget, my, my apologies, um, I think that guy will take step-aside money. And I don't blame anybody who does take step-aside money, by the way. It's, an, it's a nice thing that boxing has allowed for guys who have earned title shots to get paydays to maybe make way for bigger fights rather than perpetually tying everything up. And if he really wants to force the issue, he can force the issue. Like That's a, that's a thing he can do. Um... So we might get Fury and White while Joshua and Usyk fight again. I still would favor Usyk to win that rematch. I'm not saying Joshua can't, but Usyk's a tough matchup for him if their first fight was any indicator. And we might actually get Usyk and Fury at some point. I would favor U- Fury over Dillian White pretty handily. So if we do get Fury and Usyk for the first undisputed heavyweight champion in the four-belt era... I don't think that will be a terribly engaging fight, and I think Fury wins without too much controversy. Usyk's a very slick boxer, but Fury can box, and Usyk doesn't have tremendous power. And if if you look at some of the punches that Fury has survived over his career, he got blasted by Steve Cunningham at one point. He has now survived a wilder left hook that would... 
that has put would put down many other people. He survived a clean right hand from maybe the most. Look, you want to debate where Wilder's punching power stands all time, or where how some people might overrate it. Fine, I'm not here to have that debate. I don't feel too bad saying that Wilder is probably the biggest power puncher at the top of the heavyweight atop the heavyweight division right now. If that guy's punch doesn't flatline you, you've got a heck of a chin. So you've got Usyk, who doesn't have great power, uh, anyway, against a guy with a granite chin, unflappable fortitude and, and mental, uh, mental awareness, who's significantly bigger than he is, who can box, and who can fight like a, the bigger man. It's one of the things that Joshua never did in that Usyk fight. He never fought like the bigger man. It's one of the things that might lead him to some success in the rematch if he's able to figure out how to do it in time. Fury knows how to fight like the bigger man. And I don't think it would be a terribly interesting fight as it played out, and I do think Fury would win that fight. So, that was... It was one of the most engaging heavyweight fights in a long time between those two, and they both deserve a metric ton of credit for it. For a variety of reasons. Tyson Fury is still the man, and will be the man until somebody definitively beats him. So, my thoughts on that, and let us move on now to U this coming UFC event, UFC on ESPN Plus 52. Alright. This was supposed to be headlined by Holly Holm and Norma Dumont. Holly Holm got injured and was replaced by Aspen Ladd. You might recall Aspen Ladd was supposed to fight... Um, who was she supposed to fight not that long ago? Um, she was supposed to fight... Uh, Macy Chasson at the Sandhagen and Dillashaw event. No? Um, yeah, yeah. Sorry, no. Um, jeez. Fight Night 193. They were originally scheduled for Sandhagen and Dillashaw. They got moved to Santos and Walker just last week. And Ladd missed weight and looked awful. Now, she blamed it, uh, she blamed it in no small part on her menstrual cycle. And I'm not going to pretend that your menstrual cycle, if you're a female fighter, doesn't play a role. I'm, I know it does. This was not the first time that Ladd had struggled to make weight and looked awful on the scale. If you'll recall, when she fought Jermaine Durandamy, there were serious questions about whether or not she should have been allowed to fight after those weigh-ins. I mean, she kept the... She made weight for that fight, I seem to recall. But if you'll also recall... Like, she could barely, she couldn't stand still on the scale, could barely, like, she was shaking so badly. I don't know what needs to change with her to make this, to figure this out. She is, she's not the biggest girl in frame for ba for bantamweight. I don't know if there's a dietary change that needs to be made. I don't know if there's some kind of um, allergy at play. I don't, she, she clearly works hard. Like you don't get to her level of success without a de without a serious degree of wor of working towards it, but something's got to change because there 
I don't think there's a legitimate reason that I'm aware of for her to be to have this many problems with her uh, frame making weight. Uh, so, anyway, she steps in now, replacing Holm to fight Norma Dumont in your main event. Um, this is not a very good card. Uh, and I, I mentioned I was going to talk about this. Let me talk about it now before I get into these fights. Um, the UFC has stacked their next two pay-per-view events. You have UFC 267, October 30th. And then the first Saturday in November, you have 268. Now, 267 is headlined by Jan Blahovich and Glover Teixeira. Also features Peter Jan and Corey Sandhagen for the bantamweight for an interim bantamweight title fight, and a featured bout of Islam Makhachev and Dan Hooker. That is a great trio of fights at the top of what should be a pay-per-view, and that's being broadcast for free here in the United States. If you have an ESPN Plus subscription, you get that thing for free. Uh, I mean, if we go down the rest of that that pay-per-view card, the main card for that event, Alexander Volkov and Marcin Tabora, heavyweights, but that might not suck. Li Jing Liang and Hamzat Shemaev is a heck of a fight. And Magomed Ankalaev and Volkan Uzdemir, you know, one of the better light heavyweight fights you could find lately. Like, that's a good card. Here's the problem. If you t if you leave the top two title fights alone for a second, you could take Makashev and Hooker, or uh, Jing Liang and Shemaev, or even Ankalaev and Uzdemir. Maybe not so much Ankalaev and Uzdemir, but maybe even them. And you could make a good main event for a fight night for one of these fight night cards, um, especially Makashev and Hooker. And then if you go to 268, which is November 6th, again, you've got two title fights. You've got Usman and Covington 2, you've got Nama Yunus and Zhang 2, and you've got Justin Gaethje versus Michael Chandler. you got Sean Strickland and Luke Rockhold, also Frankie Edgar and Marlon Vera. Take any of those fights, any of those three three-rounders, right? Gaethje, Chandler, Strickland, Rockhold, Edgar Vera. Any of those is a significantly better fight night main event than the than the one we had this last week or the one in the upcoming week. And that's not me trying to dump all over those fighters. It's really not. But I'm not here to sugarcoat this stuff. When the UFC loads up a pay-per-view card, especially if they happen to load up two in a row, the intervening... Fight nights, the stuff that happens week to week, suffers. You get suboptimal main events. And I don't say that to mean that Aspen Ladd is a terrible fighter or that Norman Dumont's a terrible fighter. But this... Is, I mean, this fight's being contested at featherweight. I mean, this, this poor event... Like this was this was originally kind of meant to be to be made evented between Ketlin Vieja and Misha Tate, uh, but then Tate tested positive for COVID, so they decided to bump Holly Holm to make to bump Holly Holm and Norma Dumont up to the main event. They were on the card already. Then Holm got an injury and pulled out, and now Vlad and Dumont are fighting at featherweight for what was supposed to be a bantamweight fight originally, but 
I mean, look, Lad stepping in on a week's notice, give or take, like, okay. I don't... Whenever somebody steps up like that on somewhat short notice, I don't care if you change the weight class. I really don't. But we're just not looking at a very good card. Now, it might be good in practice. I always say that because it's always true. But I'm not... My job is not to sell you on the merits of this. My job is to preview it as to the best of my abilities, being as honest as I can. And most of these October events, they're a little bit lackluster in no small part because the UFC took fights that could main event these cards and be good main event fights and stuck them on pay-per-views to add value to that. And I'm not even saying that that's the worst thing in the world. You want to add value to things people actually pay money for. Most fight. This is another thing about MMA culture, I think. When you've been around as long as I have, and plenty of people have been around longer, you'll remember when every event that the UFC put on was kind of a big deal. Because you didn't get that many. Now you've got week-to-week -week events. The UFC has an event pretty much every week. The end result is some of these become... The, like, if we want to make a boxing equivalent, you know, there's... Boxing would have just their, you know, Friday night fights sometimes. And you might have one or two people whose, whose name you recognize, maybe somebody on the come-up. You might want to catch maybe somebody whose name you knew that was on the way down. You just wanted to see him for nostalgia. And maybe a couple of guys who were fighting not for a title shot, but to really kind of get to a title... Sh to get to a fight that might get them a title shot. And... The reality is a lot of these are skippable. If you're a... Even if you're... Like, the really hardcore fans are going to watch all of these, right? If you're not a super hardcore fan, a lot of these are skippable, especially this month. Like, if you skipped last... If you skipped Dern and Rodriguez, what did you miss? Right? If you skipped, you know, Santos, the Santos and Walker card, what did you really miss? Uh, if you skip this one, what are you really going to miss? Now, I'm going to cover it because it's my job. But would I go out of my way to watch this if it wasn't? I... Might depend on what else came up on my Saturday night, but... I... I might. I mean, there's not a lot here that gets me excited. So, with that out of the way... Let's go through these fights, and then we'll uh, move on to what to potentially close up here. All right, main event, as mentioned, Aspen Ladd and Norma Dumont. Uh, they're going to be at featherweight because of the short notice thing. Dumont is... Actually, they should... Was this always going to be featherweight? Was Holm just taking a fight at featherweight? Because Dumont debuted at featherweight, got knocked up by Megan Anderson, tried to go to bantamweight, missed weight, moved back up to featherweight... She's won her last two fights. Um, Lad beat Yana Kunitskaya to rebound after getting after that bad fight with uh, Jermaine Durandamy, which was knocked out in 16 seconds. Lad's been out for a while. Um, she last fought December of 19. That's, that's a non-trivial layoff. I'm still probably going to lean towards Lad, but... I... I don't know about that. I mean, five rounds are basically unknown territory for both of these ladies. 
Uh, Dumont's never had a five-round fight even scheduled. Lad had one scheduled for Duran to me, but everything else has been three rounds. So I I don't know. I don't mind le I don't mind leaning towards Lad, but I I genuinely have no idea. Co-main event heavyweights baby Andre Arlovsky. God, I manage the Keith Richards of MMA. He will fight Carlos Felipe. Um, Felipe has lost once in the UFC, lost a majority decision to Sergei Spivak, but has won three in a row since then, the last two being split decisions. I thought he beat, I thought he should have beat Collier unanimous, like, I, I don't get scoring that one for Collier, but whatever. Arlovsky is coming off a win over Chase Sherman. I mean, the man's 3-1 and one in his last four fights. I can joke about him being as old as dirt in the UFC all I want. And he finds ways to win. And he probably will here as well. I actually am going to pick him. Uh, let's see. Jim, oh, Jim Miller. I love Jim. I was around when Jim Miller was one of the best lightweights in the world. The man was can't miss fight action. His first fight with Joe Lozon to this day, man. One of the best three-round fights you will ever, ever see. Great fight. Jim Miller is... It's a shame he never got a title shot. Like, not not only wasn't champion, which I'm not sure he ever would have been, but he never even got a chance to fight for the belt. And that's a bit of a shame. It really is. Uh, I mean, the man's closer to the end of his run. He, he's very much coming up on it. He's fighting Eric Gonzalez here. Gonzalez, a, I don't... I want to double-check this guy, because he might be... Is he debuting? I don't think he is. I think he's got at least... I think he's got one fight in the UFC. No, this is his debut. Uh, I mean, Jim Miller's name is along the record books. I mean, he's got, I think, the most fights in UFC history at this point. Or he's tight. Like, he and, Cerrone, he and Donald Cerrone have been kind of going back and forth with this one. He's got 37, I believe, this, so this should be 38. Um, what is he, has? he has the most bouts in the lightweight division. He has the most wins in lightweight history. Uh, he's got this. He has the most submission wins in lightweight history. He's got the second most stoppage wins in lightweight history. He's just, you know, near the end. And I'm gonna pick him here because I always do at this point for purely sentimental reasons. I know it's stupid, and I don't encourage any of you to put money on him when I do this, because, you know, why would I? But I. It, my picks are mine to do with what I so choose, and I I have no regrets whatsoever about uh, being sentimental around a few people, and Jim Miller's one of them. Uh, Andrew Sanchez will fight Bruno Silva. Jeez. Sanchez. Sanchez is a weird guy to get a handle on, man. The, the UFC overhyped this guy. And he got a couple of good wins, and then he started running into legitimate opposition, and then he rebounded, and then he fell off the way, and then he rebounded, and then he fell off, and I... 
I don't know. I am going to pick him here, I think, but don't be shocked if Bruno Silva beats him. Flyweight Manon Foyro and Marina Bueno Silva. Excuse me, Maria Bueno Silva. Um, Foyro has done some damage in her time in the UFC. I rather, I favor her pretty seriously. Um, Bueno Silva is not a bad fighter, but uh, I I tend to favor Foyro here. And then kicking off the main card, Julian Marquez, the Cuban Missile Crisis, will fight Jordan Wright. Um, Marquez, man, he's a tough out. He coming off of that back and forth kind of brawl with Sam Alvey where he choked him out at the end. Um, Jordan Wright has gone one and two and one in the UFC. Excuse me, beat Ike Villanueva, beat Jamie Pickett his last time out. I I favor Marquez here. Uh, as for the prelims, Danny Roberts will fight Ramzan Amif. That that's not a bad fight. Amiv gets forgotten because he does. I mean, his record in the UFC is 5-1. and one. His only loss is to Anthony Rocco Martin. Um, he's not a very exciting fighter most of the time, but he's a pretty darn good one. Danny Roberts beats Zalim uh, Imadev. Imadayev, excuse me. Uh, he's been out since November of 19. Jeez. I mean, okay, he, he's based out of the UK, so missing most of 2020 was somewhat expected. He got injured, too. Okay. Still, that's a long layoff. I'm going to pick him, Eve, but... Danny Roberts is not... He's not the best fighter in the world, but he's not a pushover, either. Women's flyweight Sajara Eubanks and Luana Carolina. Um, Carolina's only... God... Carolina lost to Ariane Lipsky by knee bar. Yeah, uh, Sajara Eubank should probably take this. Uh, let's see, Nate Landwer and Ludovic Klein. Probably lean towards Klein, but Landwer is usually good for a crazy little fight. Uh, Bantamweight Dana Batkari and Brandon Davis. That's got a little bit of a banger written on it. Batkari got a... Uh, he's 2-1 and one in the UFC on a two-fight winning streak. He stopped both Guido Canetti and Kevin Natividad. Uh, Davis, bantamweight for Davis is... Uh, I mean, the guy got bounced from the UFC. Uh, he's coming back now after four fights, and after a four-fight winning streak. Bantamweight's just a really awkward wait for him, I think. So I'm picking Batgari there. And then kicking everything off, Estela Nunes and Ariane Carnalosi. Um, probably lean towards Carnalosi. But that's a bit of a mark. Carnalosi's been out for a while, hasn't she? Hang on, I must confirm this now. Because I know her name, but I don't recall having uh, you know, typed it out in a bit. How she fought this year? Huh. What a UFC 261. Hmm. Uh, Nunes, I believe, is debuting. She's 7-1. and one. Her only loss is to Angela Lee. She's 7-1 with one no contest. 
She lost to Angela Lee in one championship. Uh, my inclination is more is towards Carnelosi, but uh, Nunes might surprise us. And yeah, so this Saturday we'll be covering that in the MMA Zone of 411mania.com. So look, even if you don't care, stop by, at least say hello. Please let me know that someone that you appreciate my work. Uh, so, some of these stretches, man, where these are just mediocre card after mediocre card can be a little bit draining. All right, let me check Twitter very briefly, and then if nothing new is broken, we will do plugs and get out of here. All right, nothing new, so let's do plugs. Um, this last week, I did my usual spate of professional wrestling coverage, AEW's Dark Elevation, MLW Fusion, and WWE SmackDown, as well as the, UFC, the aforementioned UFC event that we already reviewed. Uh, I was also part of the a couple of reviews for Venom, Let There Be Carnage. There was a Damn You Hollywood for that particular movie, as well as a Damn You Hollywood for The Many Saints of Newark. Both of those are over on the W2M feed. Just look up Damn You Hollywood and you're pretty sure to find them. I was also part of a further roundtable discussion on Venom 2, Let There, on Venom Let There Be Carnage. So you can find me on all those. Two of those I did, I did that second one. Like I, I kind of just got shanghaied into that roundtable appearance. I didn't have anything really all that interesting or positive to say about the movie after the Damn You Hollywood. So give that a listen. This week, Monday, there will be a TV party for the Netflix show uh, Midnight Mass. There will be myself, Mark Radulich, Benjamin J. Colonna, and Alexis Haina. We should have a good time. Tuesday, the Damn You Hollywood for the last of the Daniel Craig James Bond movies, No Time to Die, which I have not yet seen, but I will see. And give that a... So give that a listen. That will be coming up Tuesday. The Anything else for me? No, I think that's it for my podcasting for this particular month. So, or not month, for this week. Not at all the month. A lot more stuff coming this month. <laughs> a lot of it. Um, we will, uh, let's see. So my uh, usual spate of professional wrestling coverage for this week. AW's Dark Elevation on Monday. MLW's Fusion Alpha on Wednesday. And WWE SmackDown on Friday. Yeah. And then the UFC event on Saturday. So we will be back here next week to review UFC on ESPN plus 52 and preview UFC on ESPN plus 53. At the moment, this actually has a good main event. It's main evented by Paulo Costa and Marvin Vittori. So please hold together. Please hold together. Because there's not a tremendous extra amount on that particular card that's... It's jumping out, but uh, let's uh, wait a minute. Song Wu Choi. Am I confusing him with someone else? I think I am. Yeah, uh, I am, and I am. I both am and am not. Okay. So we'll have a full preview of that next week. So hopefully the main event holds together because Costa and Vittori is potentially a very good fight. All right. On that note, I'm out. Thank you again very much. I deeply appreciate all the support you good people give me. Until then, stay safe out there, and be well, be safe, and behave.